This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Well, it's getting darker earlier. There's a chill in the air. It's autumn, and this coming Friday is Halloween. We all know what that means. There's no doubt there is something about this time of year. Something about that harvest moon, like when you look up at it, you wouldn't be especially surprised if someone were to be flying in front of it on a broomstick. Today on Fordham Conversations, we are celebrating witches and scary ladies in all their beautiful and terrible glory. And we're doing that by looking at witches and other terrifying women in poetry and in fiction. Poet and Fordham University writer-in-residence Janet Kaplan will read us some of her favorite poems about scary women. And a little later, we'll talk with author and literature professor Jeffrey Andrew Weinstock about his new book about women authors of ghost stories. But first, Janet Kaplan joined me in the studio on a disappointingly unspooky afternoon earlier this week. So, Janet Kaplan, I asked you to come into the studio today and talk about something Halloween-y with me and read some Halloween-y poems. What did you decide to do? I decided to talk today about witches. There's a history going as far back as Homer, if not further. Poets writing about apparitions, spirits, witches, ghosts. Of course, we know Homer and the sirens. But the focus today is going to be on witches in poetry. So tell me about some of the history of witches in poetry. I wanted to talk about witches because of the use that has been put to them in poetry. In Macbeth, the three weird sisters, the witches in Macbeth, are kind of like the fates. They worry Macbeth. They come to trouble him. They come to pronounce something which may be good news, but we, the audience, know it bodes poorly, bodes badly. By the time we get to Sylvia Plath, the witches, or the fates, if you will, play on the self. Right, She feels as if she's been plagued by witches, and yet there's an identification with them, um, as with madness. Um, but in any event, Shakespeare in Macbeth and Sylvia Plath in her poetry hold the same terrifying position for witches. They're shapeshifters. They represent fate and malevolence. Later on, after Plath, we see that the witch, the figure of the witch, becomes, if not benevolent, certainly a force of nature to be respected. If this being or this entity represents something we can't control, well, then it's very much like nature. As much as we'll do to nature, it's going to do something worse to us back. So the contemporary poems, I think, if they talk about witches as being um, frightening, scary, it's because they deserve respect. The first poem that you wanted to read is a very short one. It's called Charm Against an Egg Boat. That's right. And let me explain. There's an old superstition that said uh, when you boil an egg and after it's been eaten, the bottom of the shell should be broken so that Witches don't get a hold of it and use the bottom of the shell as a boat to sail the sea and brew up storms, um, which apparently they were fond of doing, according to the poet. 
This is charm against an egg boat. You must break the shell to bits, for fear the witches should make it a boat, my dear. For over the sea, away from home, far by night, the witches roam. When is that from? We don't know. It's anonymous. It's pre-Shakespeare. Um, we have no idea. And that, that poem I actually found rather creepy when I first read it, um, which I guess is the intention. But I was surprised because it's only four lines. That's right. But a much more famous sort of creepy passage from the world of poetry is from Macbeth. Tell me about the three witches. In Macbeth, in the play Macbeth by Shakespeare, we have these three witches also called the Weird Sisters. Weird comes from um, an Anglo-Saxon word, by the way, W. Y-R-D, and it means fate or destiny, right? And the Weird Sisters are foretellers of Macbeth's fate. That's their role. In Shakespeare's time, witches were to be feared and hunted down. And witch hunting at Macbeth's, at the, at the time the play was written in 1606, was in the news, so to say. Um, people knew about witches and witch hunting. So that's the background. It's thunder, thunder, enter the three witches. First witch, thrice the brindled cat hath mewed. Second witch, thrice, and once the hedge pig whined. Third witch, harpier cries, tis time, tis time. First witch, round about the cauldron go, in the poisoned entrails throw, toad that under cold stone days and nights has thirty-one sweltered venom sleeping got, boil thou first in the charmed pot. And then they all chant, double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn in cauldron bubble. Second witch, Filet of fenny snake in the cauldron boil and bake, eye of newt and toe of frog, wool of bat and tongue of dog, adder's fork and blind worm's sting, lizard's leg and owlet's wing for a charm of powerful trouble like a hell broth boil and bubble. What did the people who were watching this play, what would they have been thinking? Would they have been intrigued by this at all or would they just have been completely horrified? Well, what what interests me is to know what what Shakespeare himself thought of witches. Um, and I don't know. But I, I imagine that most of the people in the audience at that time believed there really were such things as witches and believed that witches were responsible for all the evils or many, many, many of the evils they were encountering. Witches were responsible certainly for, according anyway to the, the witch hunters, um, all sorts of destroying crops, um, aborting infants, I think to this day we understand that impulse to blame somebody else for our troubles. And as far back as the Greeks, we blame the fates and the gods for our troubles. Now, if there were such things as witches and they had powers, they had supernatural powers, therefore they were easy to blame. Now, the fact that there were people, men and women, who maybe didn't attend church as often as the usual folks, who might have seemed strange to them, either in dress or because they troubled um, their own minds 
or because, uh, you know, they were a little eccentric. These people were fair game. She lived on a curve in the road In an old tar paper shack On the south side of the town On the wrong side of the tracks Sometimes on the way into town We'd say, Mama, can we stop and give her a ride? Sometimes we did, but her hands flew from her side Wild eyed, crazy Mary You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. We're talking today on the show about scary ladies with poet Janet Kaplan and, a little later, author Jeffrey Andrew Weinstock. But first, we've talked about Shakespeare. Now let's move forward in time with Janet Kaplan to a more modern poet's take on witches. Well, what does does Sylvia Plath have to say about witches? Sylvia Plath identifies with the witches. She felt, truly, that she was... She must have been plagued at birth by some malevolent force. From birth, she was destined to misery and madness. Destined. Um, Macbeth may end up feeling that way, but the witches are some force outside of him. By the time we get to Sylvia Plath, there's an understanding that this darkness is within. And there's also a longing for it in Sylvia Plath, which is terribly disturbing. The fascination here is the psychology at play in these works. Again, in Macbeth, you have these forces of fate, of malevolent fate, outside, the other, the witches of the other. In Sylvia Plath, in the modern poets, with an understanding of psychology, we get the sense that whatever turmoil is going on inside us, we may call it, we may name it fate, or witches, or spirits, or sirens, it is within us. The Disquieting Muses by Sylvia Plath Mother, mother, what ill-bred aunt or what disfigured and unsightly cousin did you so unwisely keep unasked to my christening that she sent these ladies in her stead with heads like darning eggs to nod and nod and nod at foot and head and at the left side of my crib. Mother, you made to order stories of Mixie Blackshort the heroic bear. Mother, whose witches always, always got baked into gingerbread. I wonder whether you saw them, whether you said words to rid me of those three ladies nodding by night around my bed, mouthless, eyeless, with stitched, bald head. In the hurricane, when father's twelve study windows bellied in like bubbles about to break, you fed my brother and me cookies and Ovaltine and helped the two of us to choir. Thor is angry, boom, boom, boom. Thor is angry, we don't care. But those ladies broke the panes. When on tiptoe, The schoolgirls danced, blinking flashlights like fireflies and singing the glow-worm song. I could not lift a foot in the twinkle dress, but heavy-footed stood aside in the shadow cast by my dismal-headed godmothers, and you cried and cried, and the shadow stretched, the lights went out. 
Mother, you sent me to piano lessons and praised my arabesques and trills. Although each teacher found my touch oddly wooden, in spite of scales and the hours of practicing, my ear tone deaf and yes, unteachable. I learned, I learned, I learned elsewhere from muses unhired by you, dear mother. I woke one day to see you, mother, floating above me in bluest air on a green balloon, bright with a million flowers and bluebirds that never were, never, never found anywhere. But your little planet bobbed away like a soap bubble, as you called. Come here, and I faced my traveling companions. Day now, night now, at head, side, feet, they stand their vigil in gowns of stone, faces blank as the day I was born, their shadows long in the setting sun that never brightens or goes down. And this is the kingdom you bore me to, mother, mother. But no frown of mine will betray the company I keep. Well, I have to say that poem really unnerved me when I read mm, it. Me too. What else do you have? This one is titled Lorelei. Now, Lorelei um, um, is a siren, a siren of, a, of Germanic legend whose singing um, led the Rhine River boatmen to destruction on a reef. And this creeps me out, too. Lorelei, it is no night to drown in. A full moon, river lapsing black beneath bland mirror sheen. The blue water mists dropping scrim after scrim like fishnets, though fishermen are sleeping. The massive castle turrets doubling themselves in a glass, all stillness. Yet these shapes float up toward me, troubling the face of quiet. From their nadir they rise, their limbs ponderous with richness, hair heavier than sculpted marble. They sing of a world more full and clear than can be. Sisters, your song bears a burden too weighty for the world ears listening here, in a well-steered country, under a balanced ruler, deranging by harmony beyond the mundane order your voices lay siege. You lodge on the pitched reefs of nightmare, promising sure harborage. By day, descant from borders of hebitude, hebitude is lethargy and dullness, from the ledge also of high windows. Worse even than your maddening song, your silence. At the source of your ice-hearted calling, drunkenness of the great depths, O oh, river, I see drifting deep in your flux of silver those great goddesses of peace. Stone, stone, ferry me down there. Now here's Sylvia Plath with the death wish. And she wants to be lured by the sirens. You have some work of your own that you'd yeah. like to read. Mm -hmm. It's called Piblocktok, P-I-B-L-O-K-T-O-Q. It's an Eskimo word, and this poem has an epigraph. In a state of perfect nudity, she walked the deck of the ship. Then, seeking still greater freedom, she jumped the rail onto the frozen snow and ice, and then there commenced a wonderful performance of mimicry in which every conceivable cry of local bird and mammal was reproduced. And this is a description by Admiral Robert E. Peary, 
in his book The North Pole, published in 1910, describing a case of Arctic hysterica among the Eskimo, and the word piblocktok means Arctic hysteria. Its sufferers, it seems, were women. It being the norm for a man to toss an unsatisfactory wife out into the snow, sensible choice then to perfect the gesture of exposure, as if madness might become a figurehead for life, desired as essential, as distinction between oneself and the brutality of selves, a logical, even reasonable severance the weak self could not otherwise have made. For a moment, to compose, I, 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 out of the sfumato of days, a little brilliance, a little madness, delivered like fuel, as if the only option were the captain devising a full-blown catatonia to scuttle that I boat called consciousness and drown. Here I'm invoking. The positive aspect of the frightening inner self—we can call it the sirens, we can call it witches, we can call it madness. Um, if something in us has been suppressed, either by culture, by family, or by the self out of fear, it's going to come out in some horrible, fearsome way. If women are denigrated, if they're kicked out of their igloos to die in the cold, and The fear of that is present. If the fear of being punished or kicked out of our home, our culture, of being ostracized is there, we're going to try to suppress what's in us. The song. I'm thinking of the sirens and witches, and even madness, as partaking of creativity. Really, the desire to produce art. The desire to sing, the desire to become an individual, identified as different, right? A part of society, to be sure, but unique, an individual to oneself. When I started to write poetry in the 1970s, the first poetry I read seriously was poetry being published. In the seventies, by women, by feminist women, and so I can name to you Audre Lorde and Audre and Rich, and a poet named Marge Piercy.、Um, in Marge Piercy's book, The Moon Is Always Female, she has a poem titled "The Great Horned Owl." In Marge Piercy's poetry, the witch is, if not benevolent, then certainly a force to be respected. The Great Horned Owl. I wake after midnight and hear you hunting. That sound seems to lodge in the nape like a hollow bullet, a rhythmic hooting, plaintive as if you seduced your prey by pity. How you swoop from the dark of the trees against the blackest blue sky of the November full moon! Your wings spread wide as my arms, rough heavy sails rigged for a storm. The moon blinds me as she glides in ripping skeins of cloud. On your forehead you bear her crescents, your eyes hypnotic as her clock face disk. Gale force winds strip crispened leaves from the branches and try the strength of the wood. The weakest die now, giving back their bodies for the white sheet of the snow to cover. 
Now my cats are not let out after sunset because you own the night. After two years, you return to my land. I fear and protect you. Come to harry the weak in the long dark. Pellets of mouse and bird and shrew bone I will find at the base of the pines. You have come to claim your nest again in the old white oak whose heart is thick with age, and in the dead of the winter when the snow has swept into ice and frozen and been buried again in snow and crusted over, you will give birth before the willow buds swell, and all night you will hunt for those first babies of the year, downy owlets shivering. Waking to hear you, I touch the warm back of my lover, sleeping beside me on his stomach like a child. Now we have which language to be sure? We have dark winter nights. We have the full moon. We have the crescent moon. We have the owl with its little horns like the crescent moon and its big wide eyes flashing like the face of the moon. We have death at night. We have hunger and the need to feed the young. And all of this is witchy, to be sure. And all of this is nature, as life and death are natural and human. Well, Janet Kaplan, happy Halloween. And the most wonderful of scary Halloweens to you, Nora. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Just after the show this morning, it's Cityscape with George Bodarchy. On today's show, getting gory with the author of the book Dark Banquet. That's ahead at 7.30. But first, if we're obsessed with the macabre around Halloween today, that's nothing compared to the often obsessive interest people had in the dead in the 19th century. And they weren't quiet about it either. In fact, supernatural fiction, what you or I would call scary stories, were very much a mainstream form of writing in the United States after the Civil War. And many of the best-known authors of supernatural fiction were women, women like Harriet Beecher Stowe and Edith Wharton. Jeffrey Andrew Weinstock has been analyzing the scary stories that they wrote, and he's published a new book about it. Weinstock is an associate professor of English at Central Michigan University, and his new book, Scare Tactics, Supernatural Fiction by American Women, is out now from Fordham University Press. I spoke to Weinstock from his office in Michigan. So tell me a scary story. A scary story. Let's see, the stories are so diverse that it makes it a little bit hard. Um, one of the stories that comes to mind is one by Edith Wharton, um, the early 20th century author, about um, a gentleman who discovers the manuscript of a trial of, of a woman who was convicted of murdering her husband. And what we discover is, in fact that she was being terrorized by her husband. Um, the primary way that he would victimize her is she had a fondness for animals, for dogs. Um, he was suspicious, he was paranoid, and as a way to punish her, he would strangle the dogs one after another. Uh, the husband subsequently is found dead, and all the marks point to uh, not his wife, but dogs. And what we're led to believe at the end of the story is that it's actually the ghostly dogs who are protecting the woman in the story. You start the book with a story about um, a woman who marries an artist? Right. It's called The Premonition. It's, a, it's an odd little story. Um, she has, she, she's a newlywed. She has this horrific dream um, in which these ghostly women come to her and tell her 
that basically they uh, were artist models for her husband who were poisoned by him so that he could paint their death scenes. So what was going on at this at this time in the 19th century that made it so fruitful for ghost stories? What was the cultural context? Well, there's a, a whole variety of forces that converge right following the preceding and following the American Civil War. Um, so we have technological advancements that make it quicker and cheaper and easier to publish. We have the development of large urban centers where you have big populations available to read things. Um, and you have journals that are being developed for the purpose of helping to disseminate writings by Americans at the same time. So all of these things kind of come together to create an environment where men and women could publish. One other factor that needs to be added into the mix, I think, is that following the American Civil War, we lost basically a whole generation of young men. And a lot of women who otherwise would have married and turned to motherhood and domestic situations, all of a sudden were forced to uh, make money on their own. For women, I would suggest also, and this is what I deal with a lot in the book, that the ghost story functioned in kind of a dual capacity. Um, On the one hand, you could write a popular ghost story that would appeal to a wide range of readers. And on the other hand, you could embed social messages, kind of social critique within the story. And I'm dealing in my book primarily with these stories in which we can read the the ghost in the parlor, so to speak, as a thinly veiled metaphor for the situation of women who couldn't express themselves fully or weren't fully recognized or weren't being culturally validated in other ways. Tell me some examples of how that might work. Probably the most, or one of the most famous stories that works along these lines. Um, A late 19th century author named Charlotte Perkins Gilman, who has a story called The Yellow Wallpaper. In this story, we have a situation of a woman who's recovering from some unspecified illness, uh, but her husband, who is also her doctor, keeps telling her that she's sick, and what she really needs to get better is just to spend time in this room resting, and it's this kind of enforced, um, what was called in the 19th century, the rest cure. And She's stuck in this room, and the primary feature of the room, it has this terrible wallpaper, and she spends all this time staring at the walls. And gradually, behind the pattern of the wallpaper, she first thinks she sees a woman kind of skulking around in the wallpaper, and then it becomes many women that she sees skulking around in the wallpaper. Um, And at the end of the story, she has a kind of psychotic break where she's pulling the wallpaper off the walls in the attempt to liberate this woman that she's she's trapped behind the wallpaper. And the way in which the story has frequently been read is that the wallpaper kind of symbolizes the various constraints that are keeping women behind the the bars, so to speak, of domestic existence. It can be read either as a ghost story. You know, she's kind of in a haunted house in which there actually is something spooky moving around in the wallpaper. Or it can be read as a, a, a statement about gender expectations in the 19th century. So do you see these stories as being connected to uh, any uh, activities that followed shortly thereafter in history? Oh, I think very much so. Um, I see these stories as kind of a preliminary step to the kind of advocacy, say, for women's suffrage um, and women's rights that emerges more forcefully in the 1920s. What was going on culturally in the 19th century that might have led to uh, a popularity in supernatural stories? One way to kind of think about the popularity of supernatural tales in the 19th century is to trace it back actually to one guy, to Charles Dickens, and his advocacy of ghost stories, beginning with the Christmas edition that he would publish annually of one of the one of the periodicals that he was associated with. This became a tradition in the 19th century, both 
in Great Britain and in the United States to publish ghost stories around Christmas. What subsequently happens is that you see a generalized interest in supernatural tales developing out. So they weren't published just around Christmas anymore. They began to be incorporated into periodicals and book form. Another social phenomenon that emerges in the 19th century is something called spiritualism, which was a kind of quasi-religious movement premised on the ability of the living to communicate with the dead. You see it begin prior to the Civil War in 1848 and then emerge again after the American Civil War. It's not hard to understand why people would desire to believe that their loved ones haven't blinked out of existence, but instead are still out there somewhere and can be communicated with. And the advocates of spiritualism in the 19th century, and the numbers vary, but something from between 3 and 12 million, depending on who, which estimate you look at, were convinced that we were emerging into a new kind of golden age in which the dead could guide the living towards some kind of uh, utopian state. So there definitely is a correlation between this interest in spiritualism and the interest in ghost stories that we begin to see emerge at the same time. Well, Jeffrey Andrew Weinstock is an associate professor of English at Central Michigan University. His new book, Scare Tactics, Supernatural Fiction by American Women, is out from Fordham University Press. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. From WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, this has been Fordham Conversations. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us at FordhamConversations at WFUV.org. We would, of course, love to hear from you. Fordham Conversations is available as a podcast at WFUV.org. It's also in our audio archive, which you can also find on our website. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful weekend. And if I don't see you, have a really spooky Halloween.